I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to The Stages Podcast, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. It's great to have your company. Sometimes you find yourself in the presence of an individual who possesses such zest for life that it's contagious, such profound wisdom and such incredible history. It happened recently to me during a break on the Gold Coast when I had the great privilege to sit down and record a conversation with stage and television legend Hazel Phillips. Hazel is a genuine star, generous, glamorous, authentic and fuelled by a lifetime of experience and a passion to affect an audience through good times and bum times. In 1967, Hazel was the Gold Logie recipient for the most popular personality on Australian television. She has been an eternal presence on the small screen as a panellist, an actor, a presenter and a comedian. Her vast skill set has extended to the stage in a repertoire that stretches from Henry V and the Merry Wives of Windsor to Damn Yankees and the boys from Syracuse. Hazel is also an accomplished visual artist composer and lyricist. If there is a way to express oneself creatively, Hazel will find it. Oh, and did I mention that Hazel continues to accomplish all of this at the age of 92? She's incredible and fabulous. She navigates life with a strong spirituality and a confident optimism. She examines all of this and more in this essential episode of The Stages Podcast. Hazel Phillips. Hello, Peter. It's really nice of you to come and visit me and have a little, little bit of a chat over a cuppa. It is my absolute um, honour and privilege to be here sitting with you. Oh, thank you. Hazel, your career has enjoyed tremendous longevity. Um, <laughs> what, what do you put that down to? Uh, I'm not sure, except an enormous sense of wanting to tackle difficult things. I just saw a movie today about a girl who wanted to be an opera singer and I remember being sent to opera lessons with Madame Marty in Sydney and she said, look, you've got a lot of musical intelligence, but she said, you just haven't got the power. But there I was trying to be an opera, well, practicing opera And when I played the piano, I practiced the most difficult pieces by Chopin. And when I wanted to paint, I wanted to be a Raphael or a Leonardo da Vinci. I've never 
thought when I was young that I should start at the bottom and work up. I think that's been my biggest mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Does the word retirement ever enter your vocabulary? Never. Uh, I never want to retire. I mean, my body will maybe force me to, but I only did a little acting bit a few weeks ago in Upright with Tim Minchin right. and I played this ratty old lady. It was a lovely little role. It, yeah, I enjoyed it. And you're featured in a film on Netflix at the moment. That's also, right, Love and Monsters. <laughs> I'm a little old lady again <laughs> who swore a lot as well. <laughs> I know you should never ask a lady her age, but that's something you celebrate, isn't it? Ninety-two and a half. <laughs> And is that is that good genes or a, a, a oh, good yes. lifestyle? Um, well, my, my grandmother lived till ninety six, and when you think of her life in very squalid circumstances in the early twentieth century, with ten children, a drunken husband who died when my father was seven, Five of the ten children dying of diphtheria in two weeks. And the only way she saved herself was gargling with salt and water. And she had to bring up the other children by um, taking in ironing and washing for two bob a week. Two, what would I say now? (laughs) Two shillings a week, which is, what, 20 cents now. And... um, so my father was drag, dragged up, being beaten up by his brother and was consequently a very violent sort of tempered man. My mother, I only found out from a nosy ex, uh, the ex-wife of my son, she, she went into the history of my mother for some... Oh, the genealogy. Quite, yes, yeah. all that, and, and found true. out the reason my mother was so weak and and had heart trouble. She was put in the workhouse at age eight. Her father had fathered four sisters, all illegitimately, which I never found out. My mother was so ashamed. Poor little dear. She was the dearest, brightest, loveliest person with a gorgeous voice and beautiful white teeth. and. Uh, and we always laughed and joked and danced and she was a marvellous woman. And she had been sent to the workhouse at eight and apparently nine months later she was rescued by a woman she called Aunt who took her from the workhouse to become her little slave, mm. a slavy as they called it in London. And my mother had to get up at five and clean all the brass and the front step. And then she was sent to school by this woman. And at least she educated my mother. And when I was born, my mother had me spouting Shakespeare at age 18 months. And the way I could get approval was to recite Shakespeare or these poems my mother taught me. And so I think I've been performing ever since to try and get love and approval, little realising that if you 
do too much showing off, people actually hate you. <laughs> they go the other way. <laughs> so, so where did your mum learn that poetry and, and Shakespeare from? Well, I think this lady, mm. for all her picking mum out to wait on her, was very kind to my mother. And I think she taught her, the, and she taught her how to speak. So my mother was always very hard on me for correct speech. I mean, that doesn't happen these days with kids, does it? They no. can say whatever they like in whatever way they want to. Yeah. I'm very happy that I had that sort of training. And also language is changing. I mean, it does evolve and change over, over periods of time. But um, that's what, we're listening to your gorgeous little dog, Honey, who's playing with the toy on the kitchen floor. <laughs> the dog has decided to compete. <laughs> She's upstaging. <laughs> yes, well, when I play the piano, she always plays her squeaky toy. Give it to Mummy, darling. That's a good girl. <laughs> uh, but language evolves and changes over time, and we see that... Uh, with with texting and and the way that words are being contracted and um, and uh, a lot of vernacular and slang. I don't like it at all. No. <laughs> um, case in point is the local home of the arts, which used to be the arts centre on the Gold Coast. They changed it to home of the arts. Hota. No, they call it Hora. Hora. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I was saying to my friend, who's a very lovely lady, I said, it's hotter. She said, well, when I went, they corrected me and said, no, it's hotter. I said, if it was hotter, it would be double, double T. T. Yeah, See, exactly. they don't know enough about English language. And if it's home of the arts, why not hotter? You know, but anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter what you say. They're all going to stick to their guns. What age did, did mum live to? Well, she had a scarred heart from rheumatic fever and she was always having little turns and she unfortunately died just before her 70th birthday which these days is young yeah and i was here in, in sydney at, at the time and uh, yes it's Poor little thing. The only time she really had a wonderful time was when I was at the top of the tree in television and I brought her over on a ship and I gave her a wow of a time and people gave her wonderful clothes to wear and she was on telly with me and and a lot of my fans wrote to her till her death, you know, in London. She used to have this little correspondence course going with my fans from Australia. So she was living in Battersea? No, they finally got a council house in Upper Tooting. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Upper Tooting, near the Common. Yeah. And uh, it was a little too up, too down. When I went back, you know, it was like living in a birdcage. It's so small, you know, a little scullery for a kitchen. And, and the lavatory was in the bathroom. And I had the little bedroom and they had the front bedroom. And the piano was in the front room, which was always terribly freezing cold. And they'd send me to practice in the, in the front room. And honestly, memories of that are all horrible. <laughs> but how wonderful that you've, you were exposed to arts and culture in, in learning the piano. And Well, there was nothing but that, really. And... I always, I could always draw and uh, when I was 13 I was lucky enough to go into a London-wide scholarship uh, affair and I 
I won a scholarship to the Royal College of Music, but if I had gone on with that, I would have had to go to secondary school, and I just died at the thought of that. And if I won the other scholarship, which was to one of the best art schools in London, uh, and I was, I think I was number 17 in the whole of London, and I won a scholarship to Camberwell School of Arts and Crafts. And it was the best years of my life. Yeah. We did everything, pottery, embroidery, making your own book, writing stories. Um, it was life classes, lettering classes, where you had these beautiful pieces of lettering you had to paint with perfect precision with all the serifs. You, ne you never miss the thrill of painting a beautiful set of letters, I found. Of course, all those things are now done by computers, so nobody has to do that anymore. The art of calligraphy. And yes, oh, just glorious, mm. you know, finding a typeface and copying it out exactly with a tiny brush. There were joys beyond telling. It was... Glorious, And then I went from there to the first film that Gene Simmons ever made in Denham Film Studios. I didn't know, but Henry Irving's grandson came to the art school and asked my favourite teacher who he could recommend to come into the art department of the J. Arthur Rank Film Studio. And he suggested me. He knew my father was champing at the bit to get me to go out and earn money. So I arrived at this architect's office and I still didn't know what it was about. And then we went to Elstree, and uh, not to Elstree, to um, um, where the rank office was. And it skips my mind now where that was. It was in the country anyway. And I had an hour and a half's journey to get there every day, but I went joyfully and I was in the art department when Jean Simmons made her first big starring role in Uncle Silas. And she was a few months older than me. And I saw the difference in the way they treated Jean Simmons to the way they treated me. And I thought, you know what? This acting lark <laughs> looks like a jolly good thing to get into. <laughs> so uh, when I left the studios and I went into various architects' offices and so on, I ended up in a cartoon film place called Hallison Bachelors and they were making cartoon films for the government. And I started out as a colourist. In those days you had a celluloid. that I have two on the wall from the Disney Studios from Jungle Book and I got those in Disney Studios and they are exact replicas of what we used to do. You'd turn the celluloid over and you'd paint on the back the colours between the lines. And, and then I became a colour mixer. At that time, it was brilliant training to find exactly what colour, because if you change the colour, it would flash when they joined up all the cells. So you had to be exact, and I learned exactly what colours to join to make exactly the right colour. This has been marvellous for future paintings that I've done, for colour knowledge. Well, I was delighted to learn that you uh, have entered the Archibald a couple of times. Yes, well, my first Archibald entry that it got in the finals 
It was as big as a double bed, the canvas. And I painted it of Roy Mailing, who was a jazz, jazz great in Sydney at the time. And I was penniless and my husband, um, excuse me if I pull a face, um, never <laughs> earned any money. He used to go out and play cricket with his mates. Um, anyway, the way I got this painting to the gallery, I hitchhiked, I, I dragged it, it was huge. I dragged it up to the main road and I hitchhiked and a flat back truck delivered me to the gallery. And I was hung and when I went to see the exhibition on my own, I'd just given birth to my second son was about th three weeks later or something. And I, uh, I went to the studio and this reporter was there and he said, would you like a photograph beside it? I said, could it be in front of my painting? And he said, oh yes. And he had to stand me on a chair and I still have that picture of myself beside my, my portrait. And that was a lovely moment. Nobody else cared. I mean, I was the but only that's, one who That's bothered. a great sequence for the Hazel Phillips film, when they oh. made the biofilm, don't you think? Oh, they'll never do that. I'm not important <laughs> enough. <laughs> But how wonderful that you've had all these strings to your bow. So that oh, yes. in those non-performance times, you've still been able to exp uh, express yourself creatively through through painting or through well, music. Well, I was, I was always trying to earn money, you mm. see. Mm. It was like I was in the Arctic Ocean jumping from slab of ice to slab of ice. When that one melted, I'd jump on the next one. So <clears throat> I used to go in for contests. And I finally went in for a contest called The Search for Miss TV. And I got into the finals by writing my own comedy show because I was comedy act, I mean, not show. And it was a piano comedy act. And I got into the finals. If I'd won, I would have won £500, which we could have bought a house in those days. In those days, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Were you the class clown at school? Uh, no, not really. But I always got on well with with everyone. Um, I think I I certainly thought of myself as someone who could do things. I remember I was quite proud when the doctor and I put that in inverted commas. Inverted commas yeah. My father almost bowed from the waist at the, when the doctor called. The doctor walked with me up Lessingham Avenue in Tooting and said, you know, you're a bit different to the other girls in this area. And I thought, yes, I thought, yes, I am. And I did have a wonderful education of music and art. I wouldn't say I was a mathematician, however, but in all all forms of art, and I have sung and and done those things, all rather badly. But I have been able to jump from thing to thing to make a bit of money, mm. you know. So how do you begin, after seeing Jim's, Jean Simmons and um, how she was treated, how do you begin that journey to achieve what she had achieved? How Your early steps into showbiz, what are they? I went in for beauty contests. Yeah. That cup on my dresser is for the Miss South of England Butlins um, uh, holiday camp holiday camp <laughs> and I went to the Albert Hall for the finals but in the meantime winter had come I was at the cartoon film place 
mixing paint or, or painting cells and I ate a lot of spaghetti at lunchtime and I'd whacked on a bit of weight so I didn't come anywhere in that but I was offered a job in a Butlins which I should have taken but in the meantime I'd gone to the 21st birthday party of my soon-to-be husband. Right. Oh, good. I mean... If I could turn back time. (laughs) Yes. He was extremely good-looking and very sure of himself in that way. But unlike my volatile father, he was very quiet. And I always thought he was tall and handsome and clever and quiet. What I found out later was he was just quiet. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yes, I'm afraid we got engaged mostly because I bought the ring and said, now we're engaged. And um, from then on, I made every decision for for our family from then on until he left in 1964. Was he a television director? Yes, he was at the B, at the ABC and very well liked and known because he was always, you know, very charming and well-dressed and gorgeous looking. I mean, I interviewed a lot of the stars and Paul Newman, I didn't think was even as good looking as my husband. He was really good looking. Don't know what he looks like now. He's 94 now, so he's probably not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, of course, access to those wonderful stars like like Paul Newman was facilitated through a show called Girl Talk. That's right. We were the first program in that time to be sent over to Hollywood and I had a very clever girl um, as a producer who managed to get in touch with all these people. I mean, at the time... I wish I'd appreciated more what she did. I I just sort of took it for granted and just did the interviews, you know. We did about 54 interviews in a two-week trip to Los Angeles. I was done for. I was absolutely exhausted. But we also, I also interviewed Sharon Tate. And she came to the set or came to the place we were recording with a a portable radio playing loud rock or whatever it was, the music at that time. It was 60, 68, I think. It was just before she was murdered. Mm. And I remember saying to her, oh, my goodness, it must be wonderful to be... Because she was at the point of being at the peak of being so beautiful and she was just going to have a baby by that director, can't think of his name. Polanski. Polanski. And I said to her, it must be wonderful to live in such a fairy tale. And she was, what I realise now was she was stoned. I didn't know at the time. I thought, she's quite strange. She was quite detached. And uh, I envied her. And I thought, how silly, because I certainly wouldn't want to be her now. No. You know, right. who else did you interview? Oh, Omar Sharif, um, all the people from um, the the really well known television shows at the time. Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Um, terrible, I think. Bewitched. Bewitched. Yeah. Um, These are the shows that, that I grew up with. They were they were really um, oh Bonanza. Yes. All the people from Bonanza. Um, Fess Parker. 
Fassbacher, oh, he, I fell in love with him at sight. I mean, good Lord, <laughs> what a gorgeous guy, and he was so kind. I must say the hospitality and the kindness we were shown, considering we were just little nobodies from Australia, who even knew where Australia was? I think at that time they mixed us up with Austria. Um, of course, you I've know. heard that a few times, yes. <laughs> so... I must say, I'm so disappointed in America at the moment. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that that lovely country can submit to the uprise of fascism as I knew it when I came through World War II. I just think it's such a shame. I'm so ashamed that they would, those lovely people would descend to such depths, mm. you know. You have that unique experience of having lived through a world war. That's right. I'll never, no, no never forget my favourite moment when the buzz bombs came over. You know, they were the um, the planes that didn't have a pilot. They'd go, they'd stop and, and you'd fall. count to six and then they'd fall wherever they landed. So we had surface shelters in the street outside our house. So we... We had an alarm, a, a, a raid alarm. So all the neighbours and dear old Dad, we all went into the surface shelter. Dad stands at the door of, of the surface shelter and he shouts, Get down, everybody! This is it! <laughs> and apparently a doodlebug had just stopped and it was just coming straight for the shelter. And I pushed myself under one of the bunks, which was only about six inches from the floor, steel uh, poles at the side. Anyway, a gust of wind, my father said, caught its w wings and it went over the next houses and into the next street. So it was almost like the hand of God because we'd have been wiped out for sure. And it took three neighbours to drag me out from under the bunk. But I'll never forget my father. Get down, everybody, this is it, you know. And at one time I saw the windows of our hallway sort of vibrate with an explosion. I think this was the V2s, which were just the rockets. Mm. You, know, you had no warning, just a huge explosion. I think it dropped on a tooting school. And... I said to my mother, Mum, I think I'm a little bit frightened. She drew herself up to her full five feet and said, How dare you? Never let me hear you say such a... Oh, I said, oh, OK. It's just the spirit. Stiff upper lip. The spirit of those Londoners, yeah. you know, the adults who knew what was happening. I mean, as a kid, you don't kind of equate it with death and dying, but no. the adults knew the score, you know. Mm. And there were so many houses that lost all their windows. We were very fortunate. I don't think we ever had a window blowout in our house. But all around us there was devastation, you know. Which brings about a, a, a terrific sense of community also with your, your neighbours. And, and well, that was the thing about World War Two. I couldn't get over it because I was nine when the war started and I was 15 when it finished. 
and the spirit all that time I was growing up was we sang songs in in the trams in the in the undergrounds people are saying yes you know victory blah 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 it was all everybody was in it together the second the war ended everything changed again and everybody mind, mind their own business and not talk to you and no more songs in the tram you know it was a bit of a shock <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit like that fortnight of the olympics yes wait till the olympics come to brisbane everyone will be so happy so then. lovely to each other yes. and, and then, then as soon finish. as it's over good night nurse <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> public transport will run on time yeah so the move to Australia, how did that come about? Well, as you can understand, when the war ended, there were absolutely no, there was nowhere a young couple could go. I certainly wouldn't have stayed in my small bedroom with a husband. That would have been, I can't think of anything more tortuous. <laughs> um, and Bill and his family lived in a sort of councilly house anyway that... Um, his mother had Bill, who was the eldest. Then there was Brian, who was 13 months later. Then there was Brenda, who was another four years later. She was 16 when I was 19. And the twins, who were at that time nine years old. So they were all living in, I think it was a three-bedroom house, uh, down Franciscan Road, just around the corner from us. That's when I met Bill. We'd race round the corner to meet each other. And of course, after the, when the war was over and we were engaged, we certainly couldn't have lived in either house. And um, my father had always talked about Australia. And I'd always had the feeling I was going to end up here. I don't know why. And so at that time, you could emigrate for £10. So Bill went off first in the September of 1950. And I followed later, I think he paid £12.10 Australian for me to go over on a ship called the Asturias in 1951. It was very strange. I've had my numerology done and my numbers are four life path and eight. And I arrived on the 8th of the 4th of April and we got married on the 4th of the 8th of August. I mean, at the time I knew nothing about all that. But it's weird, isn't it, when you think about that? I don't think there's something in it. <laughs> <laughs> Must be. So we, we lived in a boarding house called Tara. I only went there because that's towering Gone With The Wind and I was a big fan. And we lived in that boarding house at first. And then we moved to a little, funny little place that was a an old factory type shed in the back of someone's garden and we rented that for another while and then we moved down the garden to a one-bedroom flat that was further down the garden in Banksia uh, in Sydney and from there um, we managed to go in a land ballot and my friend Nell who was a Dutch girl I met when I we had our babies in a place in Sydney where you could put your babies and then go shopping. And we came back and this woman said, your babies, you must be with them all the time. And I said very haughtily, I'm an artist. I don't have time to spend with my baby. <laughs> I don't know, honestly. And, and Nell said, oh, I'm an artist too. And uh, so she had a place in Engadine, a beautiful block 
overlooking the view of, in the distance, the Harbour Bridge and the Engadine Heights. And the block of land opposite came up in a land ballot and would you believe we won? And this, this was a block of land for £280. <laughs> and my rotten old father and my dear mother were over visiting and I was able to get him to sign a guarantor that we would pay the £280. Of course, it was a big deal. I mean, when you think of it now, it's nothing, is it? Nothing at but, all. But, but at the time, it, it was, was huge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even to have £2 in your pocket was huge. Yeah. I remember going back to England after all that and, and very sort of in the, what, the 90s and thinking, that's costing two pounds? How can they do... And realising, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's the old... Do the math. The, the old math coming in. <laughs> but um, so we got this block of land and Bill at the time was a carpenter. That's how he got into Channel 2 as a studio hand. So he and some mates, we built a little uh, slanting roofed, one of those fibro houses, a little two bedroom cottage, and cleared the land. And eventually when um, we were both working in television and it got terribly hard to do that, before that happened, of course, I was doing gigs around the clubs with my comedy act, taking a suitcase full of props and getting five quid a time. And he picked me up one time and he was drunk. Very, very unusual. But driving back, another guy was drunk coming through um, one of the suburbs leading up to the farm. And we hit this other car head on. I went through the windscreen and had 200 stitches in my face. So that stopped me in my tracks as far as starring in stuff. So I joined the Review 20, which was a choir of 10 girls and 10 boys in a show called Review 61 with starring um, Digby Wolf. Anyway, so uh, we travelled to and fro, both of us. Bill was at Channel 2 in Gore Hill and I was at Channel 7 in Epps, Epping. And uh, so we decided to sell up and we we found this little Greenwich Point house, which was a horrible little dump, but it overlooked the harbour until they the oil refinery built a huge tank in front of us. Blocked the view. Blocked the view. But we could see a little bit of the water. How long did it take to recover from the car accident? Well, I was at work because I was with the choir. I was back in two weeks. Mm. And... Uh, no, it was after I, I scarred my face, so that's right, that's when I joined the choir. After that, I had an ectopic pregnancy, which I nearly died, and I was back after that operation after two weeks. So it hasn't been an easy road. Not at all, not yeah. at all. Did you have some time at 2UE? 2GB. 2GB in those early days, mm. right? Oh, I did a few uh, guest appearances as a... DJ, it didn't seem to go very well, actually. <laughs> well, a time when you would really hear a female DJ on, on radio. Probably. Yeah? Yes. I mean, I must say, luckily, my ego must have saved me from realising how inferior as a woman I really was at the time. You know, I never really gave it any thought, but there was definitely that thing of, 
<clears throat> Maggie Tabra was fine. She stuck to fashion. That was all right. That was woman's work. You know, and other people that did little woman's uh, fashion parades or something, they're allowed. But because I had quite strong points of view, they didn't really dig me. Although the, the public did on Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I became quite popular, I think, with that program. Because I'm, as you can tell, I could always talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was the very first version of Beauty and the Beast oh, also, yes. wasn't it? Yes. Oh, yes. Who was the Beast you were working with? Eric Bohm. Right. It was a horrible character, actually, and we clashed horribly. And that when the producers saw how much public enjoyed that, they, I didn't realise, they told him to do more of it. So I was always up in arms because of my old history with my domineering father. I would always answered back, you know. Well, that's it, isn't it? Um, conflict makes for great television. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Who were the other panellists? Uh, Maggie Tabra, um, Dieter Cobb, and another lady who had lots and lots of television um, shows and things. And Pat Furman was the other one, Pat Furman. And she had a some sort of ladies program because before I came ladies would say and now we have a, 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 a we have these beautiful dresses from David Jane's David Jane's and they did all this punsy stuff you know I always said it like it was you yeah. know really uh, many different um, opinions on the panel and of course that was a prototype for, for many shows to follow you think of shows today like The View oh exactly yeah we're, exactly we're... like that mm, yes mm, mm, mm. tell me about your music theatre experience because in 1966 I think The Boys from Syracuse yes well actually that's a very very peculiar and mysterious story I uh, when I was in Beauty and the Beast a woman wrote to me and said she was a fan and invited me and my sons to come to the Gold Coast for Christmas. We turned up at this horrible house. <laughs> um, we, she put a mattress on the floor for us to sleep on. And for Christmas dinner, there were two peas and two slices of carrot and... I mean, it was awful. That was a very courageous thing to do, to accept the invitation I, of a fan. Absolutely stupid. <laughs> anyway, there was a man called Jim Anderson who was on the Gold Coast and who came forward and offered my sons and I an apartment. Now, that Jim Anderson is the James Anderson who became the offsider of all the crime bosses in the cross. And he was also the offsider of that crook, you know, who was... Oh, there's a few. <laughs> the, the really top guy who who ran all the clubs. Abe Saffron. Him. Mm. And he was... He finally went to him. But in the meantime, he came to Sydney and because he'd been so nice to me, I offered him accommodation. And he stayed in my house. And actually, he was the one who did the talking to get me, after I did the musical, he got me the job at 10 by going to the management. So, of course, they would listen to a man. And so he got me that job. But before that, 
he said you can't have the kids around and go on with your with your career and I don't know how that happened but I sent the boys over to England I thought maybe they could get a better education over there while I toured with the boys from Syracuse and in the meantime I found out that this man was a total crook told him to get out from my house but in the meantime the money for my accident had come through and he'd taken it all Yes. There's yeah. some unsavoury characters in your story, isn't there? Oh dear. But how silly was I, but totally naive. Yeah. And by that time, my husband wasn't around, of course. He'd gone off with this other girl, one of the dancers from the Larray Desmond show on Channel 2, leaving me absolutely distraught and no, no protection. And I think back to those times and I do think, oh, I wish I had that time over because... It, it's terrible that I sent those kids off. But they eventually, my son went to a very smart boarding school and came back speaking pucker English. And Scott went to a Steiner, Steiner school mm-hmm. and he had a wow of a time, apparently. But they both appreciate the fact that it made them see the world a bit and it opened their... They, I say to them now, I'm so sorry, you know, and they say, look, look Mum, you were doing the best you could on your own, mm. you know. That's, that's obviously a regret. Do you have any other regrets? I have regrets that I, I think I told you earlier. I never realised you've got to start from the bottom up. I always aimed for the top. I tried a little bit of opera. I tried playing the Chopin hardest pieces. I, you know, I made life a bit tough for myself. I, I should have realised my limitations, I think. I, I sort of never realised I should be limited, you know. Uh, the Boys from Syracuse was a, a J.C. Williamson show. Yes, it was. How did that come about for you? Did you need to audition? Or were you I invited? auditioned and I sang, Falling in love with love, Falling for make-believe, Oh, God. But would you believe I then had to, with my fairly fairly weak voice, I mean, it wasn't a, an operatic voice at all, no mics, no help at all on stage. And, of course, I didn't kill it. I, it was all right, but uh, we toured with it. But I was, I think, inadequate. If I'd had a bloody mic, I could have ruled the bloody world. Who did you play I played Adriana, the lead. Right, right. The lead. And Ted Hamilton was one of the one of the Dromeo boys. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Nancy Hayes was in that production. Oh, not the Dromeo twins. No, the, she, he was the lead. Nancy Nancy Hayes was the maid. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great show. What about Oriental Cav- Cavalcade? Oh, that was earlier. Yes. That was when Bill was still ar- around. I, it was in. 1958, and initially I took both kids with me, and Scott was two, Mark was three or four, and I had to send poor Mark back, and I, I'm, I hate thinking about that tour because I honestly neglected Scott. There were lots of Japanese girls, and they more or less looked after him. I think, you know. Oh, honestly. Why I did it? Well, I suppose Bill liked it that I 
continued to send him my unopened pay packet and he would give me an allowance, you know, which so, continued throughout our lives. It's, it's okay for a, a bloke to pursue a career in, in the performing arts, but when, when you're a woman and also a mother and after a career, it's, it's difficult to balance it all, isn't it? It was shameful that I went on that tour, but, but um, what's his name, the guy who ran it, um, who then did the three tenors, um, uh, um, Rudas. He wanted. He said he thought I could be a star, and he was going to star me in. I think a, a sort of comeback of the Ziegfeld Follies with me as the lead, and uh, so I suppose I was carried away with my own importance, and uh, yeah. I mean, really, when I think about it now, come on, get over yourself, really. You know, I should have recognised my limitations. Anyway, apart from that, I took the kids and then I sent one back. And I've been ashamed about that era ever since, really. Mm. You know, and to be taken in by that terrible crook as well. Well, we all make mistakes in life, don't we? And that's how we learn. And um, hopefully don't make the repeat the mistakes. I think my biggest step I don't know if I can tell you about this because it sounds a bit weird but I went in for my second lot of plastic surgery for my scars the the windscreen had cut my chin below the chin and sliced the chin so that that was sewn up and the the scars were quite observable so <clears throat> This plastic surgeon, I mean, what he should have done was said to me, listen, let them sit down and heal, they'll be okay. But of course, I expect he thought, oh, a bit of money, you know. So I went to a private hospital in Double Bay to have plastic surgery on the scars to draw them back. And my husband, Bill, had met a man who lent him a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. He didn't read the book, but I took it with me into the private hospital where they bound my face up like a Madonna and I had this white bandage around the face and I couldn't, the uh, surgeon said, don't talk and let it heal. So I read this book, the most astonishing book I'd ever read because at that time in 1961 nobody knew what a guru was or or what eastern philosophy was much nobody had heard the word guru now they use it for I don't know art teachers you know or, or anything acting teachers, acting teachers. Mm. Um, I read this book and this is very personal and not very good to talk about, but if I could encourage anyone who has this yearning to go deeper into consciousness. Um, I had had this ectopic pregnancy where I went to hospital and nearly died, and I'd thought of my early Christian, uh, where I was sent to a little Christian school in Clapham, and... Jesus was hanging agonised on the cross everywhere you looked and, and you learnt all about the Christian religion. And I always 
thought deeply about that when I was a child. But then during the bombing and I'd hauled this little injured dog out of some ruins, I thought, there's no God. You know, they can't let a dog get a bit of glass in its eye. And I, 13-year-old, thought, there's no God. I'll just have to try and be a good person. And the dog was taken to the vets, etc. So I was an atheist, virtually. So I had no religion at all. I didn't give it a thought. So when I read this book, I read to the end and I thought, now that's an interesting book. And I went to sleep that night and my bed was parked near a window which had a blind and I, they woke you up at four o'clock for a cup of tea. I don't know why. It's very peculiar, isn't it? And I put the blind up and the sun was rising and I thought, oh, the, there's a sunrise. And it got brighter and brighter and brighter until it got dazzling and I closed my eyes. And the d dazzling light continued and there was a rising feeling of absolute indescribable bliss. And I thought, oh my God, I'm dying. I thought, I can't die, my kids are too young, I can't die. And it went on and I thought, oh, if this is dying, bring it on then, okay. And I kind of went unconscious. Uh, I don't remember anything else, but then in the morning round eight o'clock, my breakfast brought in and I said to this girl who was delivering it, this nurse, I said, oh, you're so beautiful. And I looked around and all the colors, like they describe when you take drugs, Everything was beautifully coloured and I wanted to do good in the world and I was in this, in this state and I stayed in this weird state through some terrible agonising pain in my back brought on by the accident where I'd lean against a wall to sleep. The agonising pain was so desperate and I didn't care. I was in this state of everything was wonderful and... That stayed with me for about four months. And I thought, where do I go from here? And I was in Sydney and I felt impelled to go across to this Repin's coffee shop. And there was one seat next to a man and it was the man that had lent Bill the book. And he said, oh, by the way, he said, did you read? I said, yes, yes. I said, how do you get the lessons? Because there were lessons for how to meditate. And he gave me the address of Self-Realisation Fellowship and I sent for the three years of lessons and have been a member ever since. That's a great way to focus yourself and to energise yourself. What I can say about my guru, and it's not imagination, it's that he has never, ever let me down. Whenever I've been in a dangerous situation like the James uh, situation. I think he delivered me when I think back because he had his eye on me being bumped off, I believe, mm. because I was trying to sue him for the money he'd taken from me. Yeah. And uh, I heard back that he was very annoyed about that. I, I got a judgment on him, and but of course I never got the money back. Mm. but. But there have been times in my life where I'm 
absolutely certain of his protection. And I've meditated. I haven't done very well since COVID, I must admit. But I think perhaps when you ask the question, what do you think has kept you going? It certainly saved my life when Bill left. I, I was absolutely devastated. And I was lying in bed one night, it was about 1964, and Bill had left a couple of months before, and I'd started on Beauty and the Beast in the February. And I was lying in bed, absolutely miserable, because I wasn't meditating. The only way you can get the final technique, which is called Kriya, Kriya Yoga, it's control of life force in the spine. And the only way you could get it is by regularly meditating on the other techniques before you can... And I went to bed, went to sleep, thinking I'm never going to get Kriya, I'm never going to meditate enough. And in this dream, Master touched me at the point between the eyebrows and I had this current run through my spine and... When I told some meditators who I used to go and visit, they said, if you write to Mother Sender and tell them about the dream, they'll give you Kriya. And I'd been, I'd been shown that technique by Master in a dream and they gave me Kriya. Brilliant. So I feel if you want to ask the question, how do you keep going in life, that has kept me going, I know. A great support. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely know. Yeah. Um, television, you're able to uh, practice your, your skills at comedy through the Mavis Branson show. That was a big one for me. Yeah. Because... A lot of exposure. It was, and also I was able to do different things every, every week. Um, the funny part is that I was so different in so many ways that when they ran a program about it, they attributed one of my sketches to somebody else. They didn't realise it was me. So I was able to put on all these personas, you know. It was a wonderful show to be in. It was soon after that I went on tour with the, with the musical. Um, Syracuse. Syracuse, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so you continue to, to climb and, and achieve successes and, and soar through the television industry, so much so that in 1967 you were awarded the Gold Logie for the most popular personality on Yes, on and the bronze there on my dresser. You've got two. Oh. Um, one for New South Wales and one for National. Was that in the same year? Yes. Yeah. That was 67. And then I was silly enough to be to do a, a movie called The Set, in which, shock, horror, I swam nude across a pool. And I got headlines for months, and they all loved it because they thought it was really awful that the housewife's friend had taken all her clothes off. The only thing you see is me getting out of the pool and you see my bare butt. I mean, and I went on a recent Channel 10 interview and one of these guys talking said oh that was raunchy I nearly said to him how old are you five yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because there are certainly lots more uh, definitive nudities these days well number 96 which you were also a part of oh yes I fell in love with Vera Vera Collins you <laughs> and I um, mean it's attributed that you're 
perhaps the first um, lesbian character on, on television. And I hated it so much because I, I went to some public thing at one stage and a, a little kid, a little boy said, Hello, Mari, are you still a lesbian? And I thought, I hate this, you know. And they wanted to do a movie with me being a lesbian. I said, no, I don't. I'm not a lesbian. I don't want to be portrayed as a lesbian. So leave me alone. Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, horses for courses. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, 55 years since that that Gold Logie Award, you returned to the the Logie Awards this year in 2022. I did. You were present. How's it all changed? Well, you know, I this new room, they had about 3,000 people. It was very, it was too big, I think. It was like a big barn. And, of course, all the previous Logie winners are stuck behind the cameras. You're not allowed to be on camera. It just so happened that on the red carpet, I went up to Sam Pang who I love on television, and I put, very unusually, I put both hands under his chin and said, I love you. I said, your smile lights up the screen. He said, what's your name? He didn't know me from Adam. I said, Hazel. He said, what's your surname? I said, Phillips. So when he got on stage, he said, oh, I bumped into Hazel Phillips. I nearly fell off the chair, you know. And he looked, must have looked me up and realised, so it was very kind of him, I thought, to to give me a call out on the stage. Of course, they didn't get a camera up to me. Uh, I was on the table with Kerry-Ann Kennelly and uh, uh, Rowena Wallace, sorry, and um, and Patty Newton. So all us, all us were behind the camera sort of thing. The Golden Girls. <laughs> kind of, yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think... It would be very clever of them to let oldies like Barry Crocker and me and Maggie Deborah, well, Maggie's done it occasionally, but it it would be nice if they gave us the uh, honour of 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 presenting presenting the awards, you Mm. know. Do you think the industry is ageist and you get to a certain age and perhaps become invisible or, or we don't respect our elders enough? I think in England and America, they treasure their oldies more. I, I think Australia's very inclined to concentrate on the young. And I, another thing I thought was quite weird was giving three logies to one person. It was the best entertainment, the best personality, and then the gold logie with all the years that have been between. I mean, I think... it. In a, such a peculiar little industry, surely the gold logie would have been enough to to say that guy is the best, you know. But anyway, look, I think th- I've been to a lot of logies because they invited gold logie winners after my friend uh, David Mitchell said, why don't you invite the old gold logies every, every year? Wouldn't hurt you. So they do. But now very few of us turn up, of course. Yeah. I think David celebrated you in 1989 along with several other Golden Girls in a wonderful musical tribute. Which, That's right. Which happened at the awards yes. ceremony. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's really... Oh, the Golden Girls. That's yes. right. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Oh, I made a big mistake in it, though. I, I look at that and, and 
crouch <laughs> say oh my god but um yeah look i don't know i i think everything in the world has become more and more sort of ordinary you know, in our day, even in Monopoly, you had little silver charms to move. Everything's become plastic, you know. There used to be these perfect little cars and little irons and beautiful little things. The Victorian days when women used to make these glorious crocheted um, shawls and things. where You know, I still spin and weave a bit. And those those crafts are so glorious, you know, and it's all going. You it, know. Everything's so disposable, isn't it? Or, yes. Or built not to last, and so that you have right. to replace things. That's right. Well, we're paying for it now. Look at all the landfill. Mm. Uh, we're destroying the earth. Mm. It's it's terrifying to see islands of plastic in the Atlantic and those oceans. You know, it's ghastly. Mm. And every single fish and creature apparently has got bits of plastic in them. It's uh, very depressing. It's hideous. Mm. Well, one thing that we will never replace is Hazel Phillips. You are irreplaceable. And, Thank um, you. I would like to say one, one ray of hope yeah. that my guru says. Yep. We're on an upward yuga and we are getting to an age where tele telepathy and the higher things of life will come. We're in a transition at the moment but my guru says we are on an upward upward yuga it doesn't seem right at the moment but maybe we are yeah you have to hit rock bottom don't you before you can um, climb out of that pit it, it looks like it yeah. hazel phillips thank you so much oh thank you peter what a treat it was to celebrate hazel phillips in this episode her story is one of incredible adventure challenge and triumph and as you've heard, her contributions to the arts in Australia are vast. Thank you, Hazel, for your generosity of story, for the cup of tea, and for providing your audience with decades of outstanding entertainment. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.